Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians. One of the periodicals that I read is called the Leadership Journal. It comes out quarterly. It's for pastors and ministry leaders. And, and I suspect that most pastors read it for the same reason other people read the newspaper, for the cartoons. <laughs> good morning, Reverend Bill. Ain't it good to be here today? Raise your hand and say Amen. You ever wonder what it's like when pastors get up in the morning? There it is. You see the lady doing the deaf interpretation, and the two choir members are talking, and the one says, I think the deaf interpreter is ad-libbing again. (laughs) (laughs) Pastor's wife there. Guess I don't have to ask what you thought of my sermon, dear. What happens when church custodian Hank Jarvik is asked to give the benediction? Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention? It's 1215. Church is now over. See that you pick up your bulletins, put all the hymn books in the rack, and leave the building quietly. Thank you, and goodbye. (laughs) Okay, four-year-olds, let's polish off the book of Leviticus. Charlotte, is that you? (laughs) Have you taught the book of Leviticus to four-year-olds? No. (laughs) One of my police officer friends here, I enjoyed this time of fellowship too, Pastor, but I still need your license. (laughs) Yeah. Boy, as you can see, I've overslept or had unexpected company drop by or something. Fortunately, I've prepared this video sermon for just a time as this. (laughs) You know, when this cartoon came out, there was no such thing as watching a video in church on Sunday instead of a live pastor. That's why it's not that funny anymore, but... And my favorite here, one of my favorites, and until next Sunday, remember, God loves you, I love you, And Brother Al here is working on it. (laughs) There used to be a famous church on TV where every Sunday they'd say, Remember, God loves you and I love you. And unfortunately, in many churches, Brother Al is still working on it. If you were to open up a commentary on the book of Philippians, they would say the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. And many, many commentaries, many, many students of the word have approached the the book of Philippians and say the theme here is joy. And I I agree, there's a great theme of joy there. Um, One of the themes that I've uh, seen in the book and tried to bring out as we've studied through it is what I would call the theme of peace. The Apostle Paul is in jail and yet he's content. The Apostle Paul is hungry, and yet he's content. So the theme of peace has been strong throughout the book. But the other theme that's very strong throughout this book is the theme of fellowship. And I believe the Apostle Paul is going to end it. Uh, Obviously, he's ending the book the way many letters would have been concluded in that day with a, you know, uh, best regards, your friend, 
Paul or whatever, and yet the way that he says that, I believe, teaches us something about fellowship in the body of Christ. And so we're going to conclude this book uh, uh, understanding some truths about the fellowship that we should have here. So follow as I read Philippians 4, verses 20 through 23. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The foundation of fellowship in the body of Christ is an orientation toward glorifying God. As the Apostle Paul sort of wraps up the body of his letter and then goes into the signature in verse 20, he says, Now, to God, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. The foundation of fellowship is an orientation toward glorifying God. In all of Paul's writings, he consistently makes reference to honoring God as, as a guiding principle for his life. Turn back a page with me to chapter 1, verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Chapter 1, verse 19. I know that these things will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Yes, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad, and I rejoice with you all. Chapter 3, verse 8. Yet I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And then down to verse 17 of chapter 3. Brethren, join and follow my example. Oh, excuse me, um, chapter, chapter uh, 4, verse uh, 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. I'm content. My God shall supply all your need. And then to God be the glory. The Apostle Paul lived his life with one question on his mind. How can I glorify God? When he got up in the morning, when he went to bed at night, that was the question he was working on. Now, I have no... Uh, I, I am not so uh, starstruck with the Apostle Paul that I think his whole life was 100% righteous and he always glorified God in every behavior. A few weeks ago, if you remember, we looked at a time when he stood in front of the high priest and he mouthed off to the high priest. I mean, that's, that, that was the net effect of it. And they smacked him and, and they said, don't you know you're talking to the high priest? And he went, oh, my bad. 
Okay? So that's just a little glimpse into the life of Paul. I'm sure there were more than one occasion of that in his life. So I know he wasn't a perfect man, but he was consumed with the question, how can I glorify God? He did not seek comfort or safety or ease. He didn't work at gaining popularity or accomplishment or productivity. In the first chapter of this book, he said, some people are out there preaching Christ to make me feel bad. He said, I don't care. As long as they're preaching Christ, that's what matters. He was consumed with honoring God in his life. That was the one thing on his bucket list. Is it, am I honoring God? A contemporary song puts it this way. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. That's how the Apostle Paul lived. And what I would share with you this morning is the desire to glorify God is the foundation of real fellowship in the body of Christ. We, we refer to having cake and cookies as fellowship time. And it should be, but it's not about the cake and cookies. You see... Living for the Lord is the foundation of glorifying God. And, and the answer to that question, why is that so important to fellowship, comes here from 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, he's talking about Jesus Christ himself, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen it. We bear witness. We declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If you're not living to honor God, then who is the center of your life? I'm looking for an answer, class. If you're not living to honor God, who is the center of your life? Yourself. So when we talk about fellowship, interaction, and ministry among the members of the body of Christ, how well is that going to work if our orientation is self? If our orientation is self, then when we come in the door of the church, we're looking to receive rather than looking to give. If our orientation is self, we'll build relationships with those people who are our kind. If our orientation is self, we will give when we expect to receive. 
if our orientation is self, we will serve when it is convenient. Real fellowship springs out of a life focused on honoring God, and it's characterized by putting others first. We then who are strong or mature in Christ ought to bear with the weaknesses of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to his edification or building up in Christ. For even Christ did not please himself. If our fellowship is going to be truly Christ-like, then it has to spring out of of a life saying, I'm here to honor God. Now, what does God want me to do? God wants me to care for other people. If that is our heart, then fellowship is going to be Uh, meaningful and purposeful, and it's going to accomplish much for the Lord. Paul lived to glorify God, and we need to do the same. The, The second thing that we understand here is this. The power of fellowship is the recognition of sainthood. Sainthood. Look at verse 21, please. Philippians 4. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. All the saints. How many of you are saints here today? How many of you hope to be one sometime after you die? Um, One of the sources of our common concept of the word saint is the Roman Catholic Church, and they teach that some Christians are so righteous during their life that they almost go straight to heaven without spending time in purgatory paying for their sin. In heaven, those who are identified as saints are said to be able to intercede for people with God as prayer is made to them. Now, uh, as a good Baptist or even a mediocre Baptist, you probably know there's something wrong with that. Okay, And there is, because uh, saints uh, are identified here as people that are alive. Our general use of the word saint kind of follows the Roman Catholic concept. When we would talk about somebody, we, would, we might talk about a person and say, oh, she's a real saint. Or he's a real saint. And we, we look at their life and say, well, they've lived, you know, they are really nice people or, or something along that line. But go back with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Look at who this book is addressed to. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. I know it's a really simple thing. But clearly these people were alive and not dead. And so uh, our, as we would try to, def- try to define what is a saint, we understand, first of all, it's talking about people who, who were alive and who were able to be addressed. In fact, the book is addressed to not only to the saints, but to the bishops and deacons. And essentially what he's saying there is, in the church there are those who are the spiritual leaders, which is the word bishop, pastor, elder. They're all synonyms in the New Testament. He says, I'm addressing the bishops or the leaders, I'm addressing the deacons or the servants, and I'm addressing the whole congregation, the saints. Why is the term saint used as a synonym 
for Christian. The Apostle Paul uses it that way over 40 times in his epistle. Uh, John MacArthur says this in his commentary that I think is a very succinct way to put it. God's holiness or his sainthood is his utter and complete separation from sin. A saint, therefore, is someone who has been separated from sin to God for holy purposes. The word saint, which is also the same as the word sanctify in the Greek language, means to be set apart. Um, the violin is, is a sanctified piece of equipment. It's not something that you would pick up and hammer with. It's not something that you play with. It's something you play. It is set apart for a special purpose. Now, we could broaden this definition, and, and if we were to go over here and there is a tree with the, the right kind of wood to make a violin, we would cut down this tree and we would sanctify the wood. That is, we would set it apart for a special purpose. God says that when you accept Christ as your Savior, you are taken out of the world and set apart for a special purpose, which is to live for Him. The root word here is also the word for holy, to be holy, to become holy, to be made holy. God says we have been made holy, and the purpose of our life is to live for God. Um, there's the quote that I just gave you. His holiness is utter and complete separation from sin. A saint, therefore, is someone who has been separated from sin to God for a holy purpose. How do we get set apart from sin? You see your calling, brother, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. In speaking of salvation, God says, he didn't look down from heaven and say, who are the people that are really smart? Who are the people that are really strong? Who are the people that have position and influence and the, they are the shakers and movers? He said, God, he didn't look that way. Now, it says not many. There are a few people that are naturally wise and strong and influential that God does reach. But the point of this passage is to say that's not what God looks for. God looks for the average the foolish, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. How do you get sanctified? You get sanctified when you believe in the Jesus Christ who died on the cross, the Son of God who paid for your sins. He becomes sanctification for you. You can't save yourself. The reason we are holy is because of the work of Christ to pay for sin. And one of the key results of our union with him is his dwelling in us. It's not our humanly created or deserved righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ placed in us by God. 
that makes us holy. Look again at chapter 4, verse 21. That's what Paul means when he says, every saint in Christ Jesus. So what does that have to do with fellowship? I would suggest to you that if we rightly understand sainthood, we will view all believers as equally Christian before God. And I go back to this passage again. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish, the weak, the base, and the despised, that no flesh should glory in his presence that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now let me ask you this question. In that passage that we just looked at, is there room for arrogance in the saint? Is there room to look internally and think, hmm, I'm something? No, of course not. Who is something in true Christianity? I'm giving you a clue. See, that no flesh should glory in his sight. There's no room for arrogance in the Christian faith. There's no room for arrogance in sainthood. Is there any room for prejudice in the saint? What is prejudice? Prejudice is arrogance turn toward some kind of people. Prejudice is when I think, I'm the best kind of Christian. And those people, yeah, they're going to make it to heaven, but on the outskirts. Now, I'm pretty sure nobody would actually say that. But somehow our thinking gets just a little tweaked and we start to think we're a better kind of Christian than some other kind. Is there a room in Christianity, is there room in Christianity for a preference that becomes exclusive? Now what do I mean by that? We all have preferences, okay? I'm a tucked-in shirt kind of guy, okay? If I was really cool, <laughs> I'd leave one out and one in because that would be all things to all men that by all means I might win some, <laughs> right? But I can't stand that. Now, if you're, tucked, if you're an untucked kind of guy, I really don't care. But let me ask you something, and I mean it very seriously. How many of you, when I just did that, thought about the people who have untucked shirts and got kind of fired up? If that's the case, your preference has gone to the point of being exclusive, as though somehow your way of dressing is better than their way of dressing. Now, I understand modesty and immodesty. I understand all that. 
you know, you want to have that debate, we'll open the scripture afterward and, and we'll, we'll have at it there. There are preferences. And I would, not, I would not list the things that people make preferences about lest you think I have an opinion one way or the other. But you just think about whatever you want to think about that, that's really important to you and other people do it different. One of my dad's earliest remembrances about a certain class of people that I will not mention, if I did it would shock you, is that his mom looked up the road and said, you see those people there, such and such, they're different. You know what, Christian? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And it needs to be level in our church. If we're going to say that we have the fellowship of Christ, we have to put aside pride, our natural pride, our natural self-centeredness that constantly tempts us to think that the way we think and the way we act and the way we look is the best. Because that kind of arrogance leads us to avoid fellowshipping with those people who don't think or act or look like us. Think with me about who was with Paul. I don't think, I know that God doesn't write anything by accident. Look what he says here. Greet every saint. The brethren who are with me greet you. Now, who was he talking about when he says the brethren? He's probably talking about um, uh, Epaphroditus, who carried this letter back to Philippi. He was like one of, the, one of the elders of the church or something like that. And uh, there were other men like that with him who were assisting Paul. And so he says, the brethren who are with me greet you. And then he said, all the saints greet you. See, he must have told people. I'm, they said, what are you working on, Paul? Well, I'm writing this letter back to Philippi. Oh, tell them I said hi. And that's... You know, that's naturally how it goes. But look who he mentions next. All the saints greet you, especially those who are of Caesar's household. Think for a minute about Caesar's household. How did the people in Caesar's household get saved? Did the Apostle Paul go to Caesar's house? I don't think so. I don't think he was a guest for dinner over there. Okay? So how did they get saved? You know how they got saved? The same people who bodyguarded Caesar were guarding Paul, the praetorian guard, the palace guard. These were the elite soldiers. One of the things that I read this week said these guys got paid twice as much as a regular soldier because they were hand-picked. They were, they were the secret service of their day, the really special guys, and those were the ones guarding Paul. Now we know from earlier references that these guys got saved. And so now they go back to Caesar's household and they're standing guard over there and, and somebody goes, hey, what's new? And he says, well, man, I've just been guarding this guy called Paul. Yeah, I heard about him. What's up with that? And he just starts telling them what Paul's about and the gospel because he just can't help it. And pretty soon the Lord's working in somebody who works at Caesar's house. His household probably is not a reference to his family. It would be, uh, I mean, the household, if, envision a small hotel with a staff, okay? And so it's the staff of his house. 
You know, the word steward in the New Testament means a house manager, literally. And so it's the staff people who are talking to the soldiers. And some of those people got saved. Paul didn't have any contact with them. So they got saved. Now, think with me for a minute. It's been... Ten years. The Christians in Philippi have been Christians for ten years by the time this is being written. So they've been in Christ for a while. How do you suppose they thought about Caesar? How do you think they thought about those people who worked for Caesar? I think they thought about them the same way that some Republicans today think about the people who works for Obama. And I think they thought about them the way some people who were Democrats thought about the people that worked for the last president. And they thought, those people. And now Paul is saying, those people are Christians? You're kidding me! I had a friend who pastored a, a home mission church out in, uh, out in a place in eastern Washington that will go nameless. And nice young guy, we'd been youth pastors at the same time, we kind of went out into mission churches at the same time, and, and he's out there uh, working away, and he said, you know, visitors would come to church, they'd be there a week or two, then they'd be gone, they never came back. And he said, you know what I found out? I found out that some of our people told them that they really weren't welcome, because they weren't their kind of people. Now, there's all kinds of ways you can define that. You can define that by political affiliation. You can define that by skin color. You can define that by skin decoration. You can define that by present sin in a person's life. You can define that by where they go to school. You can define that by where they used to go to school. You can define that by all kinds of things. I think... We read about the Christians in Rome and the Christians in Philippi, and we think, oh, they loved each other. We have a missionary in Europe who goes down into a country in the Middle East, and I'm not going to name names because this will be on the Internet. And he told us at our pastor's fellowship, he said, he named the sources of people coming to faith in Christ. This, this group, and this group, and this group, and this group, and he said, none of them like each other. They're all believers in Christ, but they've all come from different, they come from a different tribe, they come from a different Christian heritage, whatever it is, and they don't like each other. And you know what part of his ministry is right now? Getting those people together at an event like we would call a family camp, and doing activities to help them see, you know, those people really aren't that bad. I mean, I understand we're not that excited about certain other kinds of Christianity in the city, and yet we don't say, those people are terrible. But the thing that I'm concerned about is the people here. Do we honestly look at each other and look past the preferences, look past the differences and say, this is a brother in Christ, this is a sister in Christ, Jesus died for them just like he died for me. 
And if I will recognize them as saints, just like I'm a saint, we'll have fellowship. There is no partiality with God. And there should not be with his children either. Well, the third thing that I want us to see here today is this. The plan of fellowship is the demonstration of grace. Look at verse 23 again, please. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Or, excuse me, that was verse 22. And then verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I read some things about grace this week that, that sort of filled in some blanks for me. I know, I've always known that salvation is by grace, but I, I haven't fully grasped the idea that God continues to give to us graciously. I think I've absorbed a little too much of the idea that, that when I live righteously, I, I deserve certain things from God, as though there's a, there's a, a give and take there rather than realizing that everything that comes to me from God is of grace. Grace is the unmerited favor or the undeserved favor, the beneficent love of God in Christ that brought about our redemption and continues to work in us as believers. God's grace is what causes him to be loving with us even when we aren't living in a way that pleases him. Listen to this story that Jesus told about somebody who was not gracious. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him, a person was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, we don't know exactly how much a talent was, but we know it was a lot. And so 10,000 would have been a fortune, okay? Guy owed him a fortune. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold and his wife and children and all that he had. Oh, I've left out part of the story. Oh, no, I know I haven't. I remember now. Sorry. Just give me a moment to think. I'm getting older. He was not able to pay, so his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, that payment be made. In other words, he's going to sell him into slavery, get some of his money back. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, and he released him, and he forgave him the debt. That's grace, right? But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him one year's pay, the equivalent of one year's salary, whereas the 10,000 talents would have probably been like 10,000 years' pay, I mean, on an equivalence. He owed him 100 denarii, and he laid hands on him, and they took him by the throat, and he said, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Have we heard that before? And he would not, but he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved, and they came and told their master all that had been done. 
Then his master, after he had called him, said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? That's what it means to live in grace. Has God forgiven your sin? Does God continue to forgive your sin? Then when we look at other people, there's got to be grace. Uh, now, please, you that have been here a while, you understand that we stand for what is right and wrong, and if you're living in sin, we're going to confront you about it. Okay? But that doesn't mean we don't like you or that we hate you. Quite the contrary. It means we love you so much that we want you to enjoy fellowship with God and with us, and we're going to help you conquer that sin. But I'm talking beyond issues of sin today to issues of preference. And we have to be gracious with people many times as they grow. This is a, a picture of how God has been with us. Ephesians 4 puts it this way. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. In other words, God is so gracious that he overlooks our, our sin and draws us to himself. And when we believe, he forgives and he continues to help. And we're supposed to look at other people. Go back to chapter 1. Let's review a few verses again here to see how grace works. <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Grace sees people as works of God in progress toward Christ-likeness. Can I use you as an example? You guys weren't married when you came to our church, were you? Yeah, we you were. You just got married. Bonnie and her husband, Chris, were hippies who fled L.A. <laughs> he became a milker in Whatcom County. They had a boy, and they decided they needed some religion. I got it right so far. And they stumbled into our church. And our pastor went out and witnessed to them. They got saved. I don't think they looked particularly spiritual when they came into our church. Were you carrying a Bible? No. no. Do you even have a Bible? Do you ever look at somebody and say, they'd make a good Christian? Shame on you. Unless you're looking at somebody who doesn't look like Christ, who looks like they're messed up, who looks like they really need the Lord. Those are the people we should look at and say, they make a great Christian. We see people as works in progress toward Christ-likeness, even if they're unsaved. We look at them and say, God could save that person. We look at them and say, God could make this Christian righteous. God could help this person grow. We have to see God's potential in people if we're going to have fellowship. Otherwise, we're just going to hang with the ones we're comfortable with. And that is way easier, way easier. 
Second principle here comes from verses 1, 7 through 8. Just as it is right for me to think about this, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. Grace values people's partnership in the ministry. Sometimes we like, we see what people do in the ministry, but because of a weakness in their life, we reject them. Even though they're doing something for the Lord. Think about the Apostle Paul again writing to Philippi, knowing Yodia and Syntyche are so angry with each other that he has to name them in Holy Scripture. And he says, I'm confident God's at work in you. And he says, I'm thankful that we work together in the ministry. You can call that being optimistic. We ought to be optimistic if we believe in God. Most of all, we ought to be optimistic about people because we see what God sees, not just what we see. Look at chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. Grace works at putting self down and building others up. Now, that's, that is a lifelong pursuit. But it's what we have to do. Our natural way is to pursue our own interest first and foremost. Um, we know that when church is over, the kids are going to run for the cake. They aren't going to stand around and go, Well, hello, Pastor Lunsford. How are you today? And to some extent, we accept that as normal. And if we're good parents and a good church, we're working to train them as they grow into mature people who have right priorities. Which includes putting self down and building others up. Could it be that when church is over, over, there's something more important than getting a piece of cake? (laughs) Putting others first, putting away selfish ambition, saying, you know, part of what I'm saying is that it's, it's as simple as walking in the door saying, God, I'm here to glorify you. Now, what do you have for me to do today? It's an attitude. It's a it's a perspective. And to get up in the morning and to go and say, now God, what do you have for me to do today? I'm trying to remind myself about this and pray about it whenever I just go places in the community. I go to to go somewhere and I kind of have this image of what I do there, but I'm trying to just stop and go, okay, God, whatever you want me to do, help me to see it and do it. Because it's not natural for me. Because I'm human, grace works at putting self down and building others up. Chapter 4, verse 2, grace works at unity. This is the passage where he talks to Yodi and Syntyche. I implore them to be of the same mind. 
Grace works at unity while our natural tendency is to disdain those who do not think like us. And lastly, from chapter 4, verse 21, grace values every saint. If we're really acting in grace, 1 Corinthians 12 puts it this way, But now indeed there are many members, yet one body, one body of Christ, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. He uses a ridiculous a ridiculous human example to help us understand that we need to look around the room and say, we need everybody. Imagine how grateful the saints of Caesar's household were for the Philippian church. They thought, boy, these people have supported Paul, and they've supported him again, and here he is witnessing to me, and I got saved. And they thought, those people are some good people out there. Yet normally, they might not have sought out people who were so different from them. Imagine how exciting it was for the Philippians to think about Christians in the household of Caesar. Can you believe it? There's Christians there. Even though they might not have naturally thought so well. Back in the early 60s, culture started to shift in huge ways in our country. Young men began to wear their hair long, and young women began to wear significantly less clothing. There was a huge movement toward the use of recreational drugs. There was a throwing off of what was called normal life. Working, going to school, following the rules of society were exchanged for a lifestyle of so-called freedom, including the indulgence of all manner of sexual activity. And the people who most portrayed that lifestyle were called hippies. Now, for some of you, this is a, a lesson in ancient history. Some of you live through it. But, uh, you know, they dressed the way they wanted to dress. They did what they wanted to do. There was all kinds of, all kinds of you know, there was stuff that they did that wasn't sinful. There was stuff that they did that was sinful. Certain musical genres sprang up at this time. And, and so, and of course, this movement really had a lot of legs down in California because up here, you can't hang out in a bus like this in the middle of the winter because it's too cold. But if you're in California, <laughs> hang out at the beach. You live that? Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think? What do you think? were the words coming out of most good Christian people's mouths about the hippies. Fine future Christians they are, right? You know, there were some political elements which had to do with uh, men. There was a, a certain political element amongst the hippies that, that really... What would be the word? Uh, well, they certainly they protested. They they argued against the Vietnam War, and 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 not just in a way of saying this is my opinion, but in a way that insulted soldiers. And and you know there was both respectful and disrespectful elements to that. And you know Christians got involved in this on all kinds of levels. 
And the predominant mood in the Christian world was not one of outreach. But there was a fella in California named Chuck Smith. That's what he looked like back in the day, and this is what he looks like with even less hair. Now he's with the Lord. And uh, Chuck Smith pastored a church called Calvary Chapel. And um, I don't know what got him started. I haven't read his story. I've read some others. But he started reaching out with the gospel to folks. And there was a whole movement called the Jesus People Movement, which was hippies getting saved. And uh, that's where contemporary Christian music was born, and I know you've all got opinions about that, but when these people got saved, they said, you know, we can't sing these songs we used to sing, because they're wicked. And so they took the tunes of some of those songs and started writing Christian words to go with them. And that was soundly rejected by the majority of evangelical Christianity at the time. But a fellow who Chuck Smith led to the Lord, who was a hippie with long hair, like we all were. Name was Greg Laurie. And Greg Laurie got saved. And he just set out to lead other people to the Lord. And today he's got a church of thousands, and he preaches a strong word of God. He doesn't compromise on anything. But more than that, he goes out all over the world and holds crusades that he calls harvest crusades and preaches the gospel. He's probably preached the gospel through these crusades and through the radio to millions of people. But he was a hippie on the beach. Rejected by most of Christianity, but one guy loved him. Melanie Hively accepted the Lord under his ministry. Now what do you think about those dirty hippies? I know there's no hippies left much. You're all sitting there going, we love hippies. I'm not concerned about the hippies anymore. I'm concerned about the rest of the society, and especially those who find their way inside these doors, that we have got to say, by God's grace, I will see them as a saint, and I will treat them with grace, because it is my goal to glorify God. Heavenly Father, build that kind of fellowship in our church. It's not easy for us because we're we're prideful, we're prejudiced, we're full of the things we were raised with, we're full of the things that are comfortable, things that are easy. Lord, help us. Help us to have the kind of fellowship that would reflect how you love us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.